the real lesson is in the moves. It's not in the content of the points at any place. So, so I, when I'm reading it, I'm not as, I don't get disturbed when I get to that point three or four. I'm just like, well, forget about the previous ones and now start, you know, because it's really about every time you think it's this thing, it, that's going to turn out to be mediating another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're just going to keep doing that. I mean, there's going to be no end point and it's just going to be the continual like, hey, now we're at the truth. And by the way, four pages later, the thing we thought was the truth turns out to not be the truth, but only a pseudo truth. And now we're at the truth and you go, OK, got it now. And then four pages later, you know what I mean? Like it's that's just going to be incessant. And it's just that that's the that is the progression is constantly feeling a sense of certainty and constantly mm-hmm. having that certainty undermined. Uh, by some later realization that, well, yes, you were certain, but it wasn't true, or so you know that's how he right. phrases it uh, for a series of sections there. So I find mm-hmm. it less stressful, but but that's that's similar to what I said last time of like I feel like I could read this for ten more years, even you know, and before I really got it, yeah. it's like, yeah. and I would also say, you know, for me this particular chunk, working back through this, um, I really felt like, oh my god, I. I feel like I'm a Hegelian, you know, I feel like I, I, in the sense that I have ended, I can think of three recent things that I've written and published where I do a flip move at the end that, uh, and people read them and I get the responses all the time, like that PNR thing that I did where I'm like, there are four ways of doing this. And by the way, they're all part of the, the first way of doing it, you know, and it's just the last paragraph that does that. But I've done that in my response to Diane Davis. I do it right at the mm-hmm. end of, you know, and I'm like, that's straight out of Hegel, right? Like it's right. straight, that's, that's just the move that he makes and he makes it he makes it every couple pages right i mean he mm-hmm. does it much more incessantly every than few I sentences do, but I was like, oh, yeah. yeah yeah that's right it could be a few sentences that's right and i was like oh my god i am not like i've come to a new point it's just that i didn't realize the extent to which my thinking was always and i always felt like that was such a big move to realize that hey i distinguish four things and by the way all four of them are part of one thing right. i always thought that was a really interesting uh uh insightful moment for me as i as i was writing it and people have always responded positively to it or nudgingly or whatever but i'm like oh my god it's just nonstop in this yeah and the section yeah. that we're dealing with especially is just relentless mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, your your focus on indistinction is so present in this mm-hmm. section, like, and that, yeah. I mean, if there, this might be reductive, but I mean, if there is, like, a, a thesis for this brief little section, it seems to be, like, all there is is the tension between consistency and inconsistency. And inconsistency, right? yeah. Or coherence and incoherence, or yeah. truth and yeah. untruth, right? So it's like, yeah. there's no, I mean, you might, like, vacillate, sort of, uh, between the poles, but they're the... There is no distinct distinctiveness, you know, between yep. between object and subject, and so on. You know? Or to put so, it in Mucklebowerese, you could say that there's that constant tension or moving back between you know the sweeping movement of the topoi and the indistinction of, well, just indistinction, right? Indistinction, right. yeah, yeah. But yeah. but I mean, you didn't you didn't need Hegel to reach that point about indistinction either, you know. I mean, you got a similar uh, orientation through Nietzsche and Deleuze, you know what I mean? So it's like all of these thinkers are invested in in some way in that level of indistinction or ambiguity. But there's a really great twist. So for me, there's a passage, paragraph 171. I mean, I just, I was underlining like every sentence and finally I was just put a big asterisk on the page because I was like, "Here, here it all is in a paragraph. Mm-hmm. But there's one passage where he makes, and this is, he takes the twist one step further than at least I'm generally familiar with. So this is uh, on 170, in 171, paragraph 171, page 107. Uh, the sentence is, life in the universal fluid medium. This is, he's talked about this, this fluid stuff for several pages and, you know, mm-hmm. this is the becoming and whatever. Life 171 has a couple of paragraphs. Is, is that first yeah, paragraph? This is, in the, this is the first paragraph about uh, a little more than halfway down. Ends at the end of the, towards the end of the line. Life in the universal fluid medium. Mm-hmm. A passive Life separating is... out of the shapes ju- becomes, just by so doing, 
a movement of those shapes or becomes life as a process. Okay, so this is a point that's not hard to get, right? There's the constant push-pull, change and change, you know, changing of things. And it's by the separating out of the moments and the shapes that it happens, right? That, 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 that. So in other words, through the form of forms, you know, or shapes, movement occurs, right? Life mm-hmm. is a process. The simple universal fluid medium is the in itself, right? There it is, right? That mm-hmm. is, it's the, it's the medium. And the difference of the shapes is the other. So you have this coagulation of shapes, the de- and then decoherence, then coagulation of shapes, the decoherence, right? We're very, very familiar mm-hmm. with this. Um, yeah. And then this is where, this is the twist that gets me, is this next sentence. But this fluid medium itself becomes the other through this difference. For now it is for the difference which exists in and for itself and consequently is the ceaseless movement by which the passive medium is consumed. And that to me was a, just a step further than the usual like dissolution, solution, dissolution. It's like, it's, oh, by the way, that dissolution itself is also a moment, though you never mm-hmm. think of that that way. In other words, the only way I can think of this is Things decohere, things cohere. Things decohere, things cohere. And he's like, but by the way, if you take that seriously, that moment of decoherence isn't decoherence. It is a moment. And I was like, holy fuck. That's why, like, for instance, Nietzsche has this antagonism towards the dialectical quality of his Dionysus. And I'm like, that's it. Now I see, I get a sense of what he, what Nietzsche wasn't recognizing in his youthful writing was that by talking about it in terms of like the stream of becoming or Heraclitus's stream, that's creating it as a moment, meaning as a sort of form, right. a, a formless form of a moment, which is to say it's wrong, which is to say it's an inaccurate rendering to think of it as becoming in that sense. I was like, that, that for me, it was this moment of like, whoa, that's another turn that I had not thought of before. Formless, yeah. formlessness is itself a form. Is it's a form. Yeah. That's right. right. And, and it's and, necessary. And the, yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, but that, I was just like, that's a next, that's next level for me. Mm-hmm. Was, yeah. was really kind of seeing that like, oh, it's not just a question of saying, hey, we're all in this formless fluid becoming that occasionally assumes shapes. It's like, no, 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 we're not. That's not the, it's not like the real reality is the formless movement because that's right. another moment. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, you know, for me, that was just a, a, a epithy, you know, epiphany or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> to bring this back to your stuff on indistinction. So I, yesterday I taught the final class in my history of rhetoric course. And I've for the last the two times that I've taught it now, the last thing I teach is uh, John, your short piece, the return to the question, the what is rhetoric yeah. one. And it just then becomes like the opportunity. Like, All right, you've spent the entire semester kind of asking that question, let's, you know, let's think about it as the, like in terms of the, like as the, in the form of the question. And one of my students asked at some point, like, is rhetoric limited by not being definable? And yeah, I mean, it was a good question. Yeah, and, it's a very good question. And I, and I had to think through it a little bit and, it, and it, it, I stumbled on the, the, a very similar kind of response is that like, Yes, but not any more than anything else is limited just, by having any other kind of definition because right. to say that it is not definable is itself a definition. To say that it that's is, right. you know, not whatever it is, that is still a, that's right. you know, like when I. Recognition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like when I, when I define rhetoric instrumentally, it opens up one kind of field of things th- right. th- that I can do with it. Like when I teach, you know, my writing to persuade class and I just sort of run with Aristotle's definition of, of rhetoric, then rhetoric becomes and does one kind of thing. And then when that mm-hmm. tope boy gets cut by asking, you know, like by attending to the form of the question what is rhetoric and it becomes that indistinguishable unlimited thing that now just limits it in a kind of a in a different in a different way and i think that's exactly what's going on here is that like i mean because there are the two there's like the you know the the dissolution becoming equal of everything and then the the shaping into its parts and then coming back to that dissolution and the way in which that dissolution happens is informed by the 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 the, dis, the the prior distinguishment, right? So there are there are That's multiple right. ways. Like there's not just one way things become indistinguishable. 
right? That right. there are the, there are the styles page, of becoming indistinguishable. No, this is just says the the, the um, on the next page, and the, like I said, that paragraph for me was just huge, one seventy one. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. on, on the next page, thus the simple substance of life is the splitting of itself into shapes, and at the same time the dissolution of these existent differences. Again, clear, mm-hmm. like that's that's old school, right? And then this is the twist, is and the dissolution of the splitting up is just as much a splitting up and a forming of members, right? And, and it's that yeah. next move, because you could easily say, well, that dissolution is the condition for the future forming of other members, but that's not what he's saying, right? right. He's saying the dissolution itself is the formation of members, mm-hmm. and that's, that's where I, for me, that's just that one hook more because I think, you know, in terms of that essay, for instance, I remember my motivation in writing it. And it was, on the one hand, I'm so sick of this question, what is rhetoric? And on the other hand, it's the only question you can ask, right? Like, and, and I'm also, I'm equally sick of the dismissals of that question, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, it was right. this kind of like, stop asking what is rhetoric and stop telling people to stop asking what is rhetoric. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> And for me, like, it's the simultaneity that's the key there, like, between yes. coherence and incoherence. Like, you have to think them temporally as that's happening right. at, the, at the same time, basically. That's because right. if, to take shape, you need incoherence. To, like, that's so right. it's, and there's not one coming after another. It's, it's that's the hard harder. part. Right. Because, you know, it's, I totally agree with you because it is, it is, and I think it's conventionally easy to say dissolution taking shape, dissolution taking shape. And I, right. I get that, right? I get that's the conventional understanding of becoming that I have always had, right? right. But to think that dissolution itself as the taking shape of a, right. on another level. And I'm like, yeah. well, that's, that's a move that to me is new, right? Like, yeah. or that I hadn't and, thought fully. Yeah. Think of like the, 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 the dissolution taking shape, dissolution taking shape posits a form content relationship, right? Because there's always some kind of prior con- content that's getting taken up yeah. into that's a right. form. And then that would yeah. like, they would, like content would have to mediate the shift from one kind of set of forms to another set of forms. But what's going on here is, is I mean, I think resonates with Nietzsche is that form only ever takes up form as its object. As its object. Right? Yes, yes, yes. Right. I like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you need you need right. the content is down. always content is always form. Like the yes. the, mm-hmm. what, the thing that we call content is kind of inconsequent. Like form is always the content of another form, yeah. another force. And the and the content of a form could always become the form for another content. For another content, I mean, it doesn't. The, the distinctions are always merely relative, and depending on where you're standing and what you're looking at, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but it makes all the difference. I mean, that's where in the what is rhetoric question, for instance, it matters how you answer that, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it matter if if you answer it Aristotle's way, that's going to lead you to look mm-hmm. at certain kinds of things and attend to certain kinds of things. If you answer it in Vitanza's way, it's going to lead you to a different kind of thing, right? So it, it right. matters which answer. So it's not like it's the only thing that matters, matters. Right. Right. No. right? Right. Yeah, and I mean, and and different. So sort of take the the other like end of that equation or this this oppositional logic like difference also is taking shape right the the usual yes. way of thinking difference or the one that i see most often is that difference is sort of pre-individual like substance that's, right. that's just out there singularities right yeah. right right and here it's like i mean you just can't think of it uh in terms of that kind of linear or temporal logic like they have right. to be together you have to force them together in your mind somehow yeah you know. Well, this is where you got. I mean, I, for the longest time, I've my particular linchpin on this was the notion of the genius, the individual mm-hmm. genius, right? Because that's been a target as long as I've been in academia. That's been a punching bag, right? Like the image of the individual genius, right. and I've always been like, well, I don't see what's. I mean, I it just seems to me from living in the world that there are clearly individual geniuses, right? Like there are people who, for whatever reason, yeah. right, like are just fucking geniuses, and. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and that's been a target all along, but it's precisely to say you have to really circumscribe the notion of the individual in a completely, like, totally cordoned off way. Um, and if you don't cordon it off like that, individual itself is not a problem, right? Like the notion mm-hmm. – so, so I actually feel myself heading much more towards the importance of things like choice, right? Like 
the decisions that you make make a difference. The choices that an individual consciousness makes. Because an individual consciousness, it, it isn't an individual consciousness in that mm. kind of, you know, sort of sectioned off way. And so therefore, all we've done is we've changed the notion of the individual to say, that thing is obviously social. It's just right. a particular configuration of the social that's different than a group of people. But we know a group of people are capable of behaving just as stupidly as an individual. Mm -hmm. You know, like it doesn't matter how many there are. It's not like, oh, right. well, if you have 20, then you're going to have better decisions than if you have one. That's just not true. Right. right. It depends on the one and depends on the 20 and depends on, uh, you know, a host especially of depends on the configuration of, of each one. Right. The, I mean, that's right. I get the, the, the taking on the, the genius as the punching bag. If you think, you know, much more atomistically where it's something about, right. you know, the, the, the bounded individual Discreet that bounded. has right. the better qualities. Right. But if you think of the individual as nothing more than the individual intersection of a handful of things that's like, right. whoa, wow, this one, like at with it within this general constellation at this moment, this set of intersections has got a whole lot more resonance and a whole lot more di different directions than other places. But if you took that, ex you know, it, it would be. I think part of the problem with the genius is like the notion that well, if you took that genius and you plopped them to any other context, they're still the a genius. Fine. Right. Yeah. But not true. that's not the case, right? That 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 you know. Well, I don't genius, even know what that would mean. I mean, right? I, like, exactly. When you think about it a little bit. It's like. How, I mean, if you take something out of its context, then it's not that thing, right? It's not that thing. <laughs> then it's right. something yeah. else. I mean, I suppose so. there are some Renaissance men or Renaissance people that are kind of just good at everything, but that's pretty rare. You know what I mean? Like, there's geniuses in certain sports, and they wouldn't translate to other but sports. But you could you know, if you it, want to it doesn't. Of... But it sort of doesn't matter. Like, to me, if someone has evolved to a certain point by age 30, 20, 10, it doesn't matter what that number is, and then you put mm. them somewhere else... That's just a, in a different ecology. You can't forget right. the 10, 20 years. Like, mm -hmm. they don't disappear right. just because they moved countries or whatever else. Like, so so no. to me, having cultivated a series of capacities for this thing, they might become good at something different and you never, you know, mm -hmm. but, yeah, and sure. they might become good at nothing, but that doesn't, it doesn't speak to, like, you know, we are just the accumulation of those contextual mm -hmm. things in a singular fashion. But the in, the notion of the individual, and again, the things that go along with it, like choice, reason, all of those sort of, you know, uh, enlightenment values that people right. are beating up on. And I'm like, I mean, I, I've just found myself more and more politically, like, it matters what choices you make. Like, your choices, yeah. mm -hmm. that, that's it. It makes it... Now, I, I recognize that that doesn't mean that everybody is equally capable of making every choice. No. <laughs> not, I've never said, you know, I don't think anything like that at all. It's not... That's where you have to distinguish between a notion of a socialized conception of the individual and that discrete, right. hermetically sealed, Cartesian, yeah. you know, individual. Right, like, that right. thing just seems like, of course, that's... No, no one's talking about that, right? Mm -hmm. You're all talking about mm -hmm. this sort of matrix of, you know... But in yeah. that context, the notion of the individual choice, rationality, all of those punching bags are like, why are those things a problem? Those seems like perfectly good values. Well, why That's even important. take them up as punching? Uh, for one thing, they've been beaten to death. So, like, wouldn't it be far more interesting to say, like, all right, what does choice look like given, you know, right. this set of mm -hmm. configurations? And perhaps right. that, you know, the, that category can be given new life. So, like, what happened? When, what is choice if it's not, you know, sort of the retreat into the cogito to sort of, like, survey a right. world independent of oneself and then choose to act within it or not right. act within it, right? It's like one of those things that for me, for instance, uh, I remember having this conversation with Diane about a decade ago and she was huge into Derrida on the decision, right? Mm -hmm. the, the decision is a cutting that can't be programmed in advance, must have this moment of absolute. And I'm like, why does Derrida shy away from the word choice? Because he does, right? Like, I mean, he mm -hmm. does. He, you know, in Derrida's writing, the word choice is a bad guy. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and, but the word decision is a good guy. Like, wait, to me, you got to say, and if he wants to say choice has historically been configured as that hermetically, you yeah. know, and the reason mm -hmm. I go, and fine, that's a perfectly great explanation, but I have not read him do that anywhere. And so I'm like, all of those Derridians who want to take up Derrida on the decision and Derrida on justice, right? But right. want to refuse these categories of the, you know, these traditional humanistic categories. And I'm like, wait, 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 you have to explain to me why you're saying I'm pro decision and not pro choice, pro choice, right? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why I think the concept of the decision as a cut is a, is an important concept in Derrida. 
and why I think the refusal, you have to, to me, you have to take that up. You have to uh, mm-hmm. at least negotiate that. But Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I think, think actually pulling, I mean, bringing up the pro-choice thing is that there's the, I mean, there's the whole Christian morality baggage that comes along with the notion of the choice so that, so that like accountability comes along with the choice that one makes and they get schematized right. within this whole ethical, like, right. sphere. Right. Yeah. I mean, it might are, just yeah. be a, yeah, it might just be a problem of terminology. I mean, because Derrida shied away from the subject too, right? He didn't talk about Absolutely. subjectivity all that much. I mean, right. and that's because it's associated with the cogito and whatever. So yep. it's like, yep. I mean, you know, and people like Lacan took it up, but most of the post-structuralist theorists, they got rid of subjectivity, right? For pretty yep. obvious reasons, you know, yep. terminological but, reasons. But if you say, but if you say, and I think that you can follow... Althusser and others, if you say subjectivity is nothing but, right, it is the kind of coherence of, you know, mm-hmm. just what Hegel's talking about here in terms of, mm-hmm. I mean, all he's talking about is the formulation of self-consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's what he's interested in at this, at this juncture. Well, all self-consciousness is, is this, you know, series of um, what other, I mean, other in the, you know, the technical sense, this series of relations to otherness, that's mm-hmm, all mm-hmm. self-consciousness is. And if that's the case, then self-consciousness, the humanistic sub- subjectivity, uh, all, mm-hmm. a choice, these things aren't in and of themselves problems, right? Mm-hmm. They are, in fact, just how things operate. And yeah. it's kind of a disservice to, to sort of shunt a, a version of them aside. Mm-hmm. As, and again, I get the political reasons by saying not everyone gets to make the same choices, that you get to make, and often, and, and Nathaniel, you're absolutely right. The notion of choice gets hooked into this Christian ethics, that yeah. is is a problem, right? That everyone should choose, you know, the thing that they tell you to choose, and that's choice means conformity, not choice, <laughs> right? Um, right? But never, right. nevertheless, it's not the category itself that's at stake. Right. It's the way that it's been taken up in a particular discourse. Yeah. Well, yeah. it just seems like ironic that for a, a a critical move that wants to champion the complexity of the world would take such a reductive notion of something like like choice, right? To yeah. say that, oh, yeah. well, choice has to be packaged this way and it has to be attached to these other things. And because of that, we have to jettison it and move beyond it in some kind of way. Like, well, right. no, you, like... like follow the trail of the things that don't work and then see how it gets reshaped as you do it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But I get it too. I mean, I also would say I have a sympathy for the rejection of choice and simply because I remember those moments in my education, right, where it was like, ah, choice, individualism, right? Like, uh, you know, so for me, I had to go through that. Like, I had to go through mm-hmm. the rejection of you know, anything that would be associated with the Enlightenment or let's just call it humanism is a better word, I think, but anything associated with the humanistic value structure, you know, affiliated with that in order to get to a point, and that would be Hegel's point, right? Like, you got to go through, you can't can't skip it, right? You can't just jump to Mm -hmm. the point where, ah, now choice means something different. You have to go through the negotiation. I do feel still like an allergy to some of those terms, choice yeah, and then yeah. free, freedom, especially like I see yeah. the word freedom and I'm like, oh, yeah. God, like it's just I mean, it's so Kantian, you know, and but yep. obviously the way Hegel's using it is such a convoluted, like paradoxical notion of freedom. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's freedom through the determinism, you know, you yeah. have to pass no, right. through the determinism to actually right. achieve what he calls freedom. So it's not, yeah. it ends up not being freedom, basically, but still right. with like a, a twist on it that gives you, I mean, it, it does give you some version of agency, like you were kind of talking about, like you should still think about your own choices and be careful yeah. with your own decisions, you know? And every, everything in this book, that's all it does to me is all, all these concepts that are my allergy, con- like essence, truth, mm-hmm. like all it's done is beat up on those concepts to the point where I'm just like, I don't know what the fuck they mean anymore, right? Like, I don't have right. any concept. Or rather, maybe the better way of saying it is, in this moment, essence means this. But at this other moment, essence is going to mean, the, like, literally the opposite of that. And, mm-hmm. and then subsequently, right. it will mean something that's not the opposite exactly, but a kind of reformulated, you know. And maybe that's an advantage 
it's interesting because I've always kind of had an aversion to reading old stuff, Nietzsche being mm. a big exception, but I just don't like reading old stuff. But one of the things that in this case it has forced me to do, and maybe it's because Hegel's amazing, I don't know, but it's forced me to confront those vocabulary conceptual allergies because you mm. can't read this in either, either that or I'm just going to be who I was when I started reading, which is just generally suspicious and skeptical of anything. And mm. I felt I feel like once I opened a little bit, or once somehow I was able to even begin reading this, everything, all of the conceptual sort of edifice has been at stake, you know. And I, I find myself way more careful. Like essence is mm. one for me that this book has clearly done mm -hmm. it to the word essence, mm -hmm. because I have had an aversion to the notion of essence for twenty years. And anytime I hear an essence or someone talking about an essence, I'm, you know, I'm a good feminist, right? Like, essence yeah. bad, right? And now I'm like, eh, essence is actually the only thing you got, guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's just differently thought, right. you know? It, it might still be bad, but it's, it's sort of inescapable. You know what I mean? That's yeah. how I, I feel like it is here. You know, it's like, it, it still produces consequences that might be bad <laughs> but it's it's for hegel it's the it's the movement of spirit i mean so it's like that, in right. his system you don't get away from it simple no. yeah. but it's also but in the essence isn't again a thing that exists in and of itself right? right and that right. and it's, if it's, essence it's isn't that then then you, you like then a lot of the teeth of criticizing it like get taken away i mean for me that big move is the way that he reconfigures the language of universality which yeah, you know is sure. not a domain that creates an equality between every everybody and then allows sort of like a freedom to act and the moralism that comes along with it but like universality is only ever deployed within like specific sets of relationships yeah. and you so universality then means that like it's never like you universals are never equal to each other. Think about that yeah. for a second. I know, right? Right, right, right. Right. And and you yeah. know, I like, think about a whole discourse of of essences and you know, like a, a humanist privileging of the human and um and even like political um like rights. I mean, they're all premised on a uh uh on a, a notion of universality that equalizes like that says you know what this woman equals this woman equals this woman in terms of their femininity and this citizen equals this citizen equals this citizen in terms of their relationship to the state and here this is like think about the the universal term of the i which is only ever this cons compound complex set of like like, I mean, like act, yeah process of differentiating through a universal schema Right, yeah. mm -hmm. I, I, like that. That to me is is really fascinating. I I, I do have a feeling that the, the one of the main reasons why Hegel has not been taken up really at all in rhetoric is simply because of the terminology. Because as you're saying, there's there's a wild contingency in the fabric of this entire system and book, whatever. All of Hegel's oh, writing yeah. is is like obsessed with the contingency of relations. And that's what rhetoric has been trying to cultivate for the past yeah. couple decades, right? Is a right. is a focus on context and contingency. I, I feel like the the terminology of essence, the universal, the subject, spirit. That just that has made people unwilling to um, sort of assume him as a as yeah. a figure for rhetoric. You know. I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's. Yeah. And I do. I think that one of the things reading this has done is it's put all of those concepts back into play uh, in ways that I, you know, I have I've just had those allergies to them. Right. I think you're right, and it it makes it makes yeah. reading like a completely new kind of experience too. You know, because yeah. I can't rely uh, on the things that I like, okay, that's a bad thing. I want to kind of stay away from that. And like, yeah, right. go contingency, bad universality. And he's like, no, 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 you only get contingency through universality. Like there's no, mm -hmm. there's no alternative. And yeah. it's like, Whoa, wait, hold on a second. I thought, and he, I guess for me, I realized the extent to which uh, maybe you realize the tribalisms that are built into your own thinking that you're not even, necessarily too terribly cognizant of it's like okay yes i do self-identify as this kind of anti-humanist and mm -hmm. even though everything that i write is kind of problematizing the anti 
in anti-humanism. Right. Nevertheless, I still feel a draw to that. And this is sort of pushing me to realize like, actually, John, you're way more of a, you know, anti-human, you know, you're way more tribal about that than you realize mm-hmm. at the level of understanding. I mean, we've just talked about, you know, essence, universal, freedom, like these terms. And like, yeah, uh, I, it forces me, it has forced me to read, I mean, in conjunction with you guys, right? Like, because I, I don't right. know that I would have done, been able to do this by myself. I, I don't think that I would have, you know, I would have, I would have read it and I would have gleaned from it the reasons that Deleuze dislikes Hegel, mm-hmm. because that's mm-hmm. what I sort of knew going into it. Even though I wanted the whole point in reading it would have been for me to open up, but I don't know that I could have, I could have done that, you know. Maybe. Yeah. No, you know. I don't think I ever would have had as as strong of a handle on Hegel if we hadn't done this podcast or whatever. You know, like I I was getting my Hegel through Zizek, and right. I was sort of comfortable with that. I was like, well. His version of Hegel is kind of readable and yeah. uh, seductive. And I was like, do I really want to get into the weeds with the, the real thing? And mm-hmm. since we have, I mean, it's been like, now I can quote Hegel confidently and not yeah. like sort of, yeah. you know, uh, hesitantly without really knowing if what I'm saying has purchase on the text. I see desire on 167. Ah, there we go. So but we don't have. We can start at one seventy four. It, it pops up earlier as well. Like it's yeah. been. We we've touched on desire, but only in passing previously. Right. I have one I, sentence here. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say I don't. I don't totally know where to begin with it. So I was just curious if either of you like that resonated with more with either of you, and 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 you have a passage you would want to go to, or if you have a take on it, I wouldn't mind reading a little bit of it out loud. Mm. Uh, I mean, I have one sentence here I could, I could pull from 167, but, and I have a very sort of boring take on it, but, uh, it's, it goes, yeah, yeah, it goes, this unity, this unity must become essential to self-consciousness, which is to say self-consciousness is desire, full stop. So, I mean, he's just fully equating self-consciousness and desire there. And to me, it kind of felt like, uh, it reminded me of Derrida's auto-affection for some reason, you know, where it's just like the loops, the sort of tautology of, of subjectivity, where um, it's always referring to itself and in some ways appropriating and depropriating otherness, right? So desire, at least for me in this section, is, is a word for that looping process of, uh, of, indivi- of individuation. You know, so in other words, that, that like self-consciousness in order to produce itself creates an other, creates a distance between itself and that projected other, and then that distance and overcomes it. And, overcomes it. and so that, so the distance, the differentiation is the desire and the overcoming of it is the satisfaction of that desire. Yeah, my take is it's the second part. Mm-hmm. It's the overcoming that is the desire. Right, like that. Uh, my okay. take of right. how he uses desire in the passage you just quoted, but also the later stuff, is that desire is the overcoming. Uh, desire is the reunification moment, meaning mm. the sort of bringing back into the for itself um, right. of the in, of the in itself. So is, that's interesting, desire, because then desire would be an accomplishment. It would be. Well, it would be an endpoint. D- De- well, well, desire is a thing that drives the unification, uh, the, the the reunification. It's not, it's not an end point so much as that's the. So desire is uh, always a desire for completeness. Right, like desire in that well, sense, that desire or, or for some provisional, of course, right. unification. That what self consciousness is desire means is that the self always wants to be complete. Yeah. Right, that it is. Yeah. So you can see how this, at least for me, you can see how it feeds into the psychoanalytic interpretation that Lacan, right. you know, yeah. will, will yeah. give it and Zizek after that. That sure. uh, you know, and so it's the real later. But uh, but so if we look at it on 174, 175, um, on 175, <clears throat> um, desire and the self certainty obtained in its gratification are conditioned by the object, for self-certainty comes from superseding this other. In order that this supersession can take place, there must be this other. So, um, 
So desire obtained in, the, in its gratification, that's, it's the drive for the unification of self-consciousness in relationship to the object, right? So that, oh, right. I get what, I know what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, the, that sort of realization and, the, you know, the various stages of it. So it right. is, in fact, something other than self-consciousness that is the essence of desire, and, and through this experience, self-consciousness has itself realized this truth. But at the same time, it is no less absolutely for itself. It is only so by superseding the object, and it must experience its satisfaction for its truth. So mm-hmm. there is this sense, I mean, it may well be that it's kind of both sides of that, but it seems to me like the emphasis here really is on the, the bringing back into uh, 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 the right. fold component, the, the, the Aufhebung. Right, yeah. uh, 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 side of things rather than the negating side of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, like like we were talking about at the beginning, like the simultaneity of whatever terms you want, consistency and inconsistency. Yes. I think here yes. it's it's the object of desire is sort of the perpetuation of desire. Right? If you if you take it in the the psychoanalytic yeah, vein, it yes. can't be satisfied in terms of like a concrete actualization desire is this is Zizek's take whatever I'm just parroting that but desire is satisfied through its perpetuation right so like the 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 object is simultaneous with it's the loss of the object so it's like that constant reaching and then not attaining you know what I mean and I think you initially were taking some issue with these characterizations right John because it's it's a desire based on failure Right, yeah, failed actualization. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but that's that's the sense to me of self consciousness is desire. Like that. Right. That's in one seventy one seventy four. Um, it's you know what self consciousness does is it wants to appropriate, right? It wants to uh, right. You know, and now the thing that it's appropriate. Now, first of all, self consciousness is not a stable entity, as we've learned, and nor is the object, and that's what changes things dramatically. Right, mm-hmm. like if they if it was like ah, there's an I and it just goes out into the world and wants to appropriate things, then it would be this giant appropriation engine. But insofar right. as it is not, it is the residue of you know this whole this whole process and movement. It's hard to call it an appropriation m- machine in the same way that I would have three months ago, four months ago. You yeah, know? I mean, for the it simple- certainly can read that way. <laughs> like, well, let's not even for the for the simple logical reason that that appropriation would mean death. Actual full appropriation yeah. would mean stability and therefore death. So desire can't desire completion, right? Just logically in this system, it has to maintain some instability to work, right? Well, right. I was just going to say that this desire seems to be a death drive, that, that the desire, yeah, yeah, exactly. like, insofar as desire wants completion, it desires its own death. But Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, and then the the little, the Zizekian twist on the death drive is precisely that you need that breakdown in the engine for life. Like, so there's a there's a big portion of death in the life machine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you need to constantly break down and encounter the other and collide with the other in order to maintain any provisional consistency. But again, but even to think that way requires a it requires a hypothesizing of both the other and the self mm-hmm. in order Probably. to think of it that way. And, and so if you, if you don't, if, if you think, as he's shown us, to think the object and the subject both right. as constituted in this process, you know, if you eliminate all of that and just look at it as subject-object, then yeah, it looks like appropriation machine. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it as this sort of engine of negation and let's just call it overcoming, right? Like, because right. to me, that's desire too, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the thing, like when we get to that level of self-consciousness, it's not like there's a phase change. It's just an accumulation of a series of, of movements. And so therefore, that's where I would say there is nothing missing there. And there is nothing. It, it's not a death drive any more than it's a life drive, right? Like itself, right. like that whole, that, that one has to hypothesize those two points in order to think of it as a death drive. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. to, to think of it as an appropriation of an object when and that may well be how self-consciousness thinks of it, but that's right. not how it actually works. Right. That but it, it is how it, it works. 
right? I mean, it is how it works insofar as like the hypostatization is a movement, right? Like, I mean, it is it is an act. It's it's you know, it doesn't correspond to an underlying reality, but it is the sort of like tropological, topological, like carving of the boundaries of something in order to. But it would be the mis- the mistaken understanding, I think. Right would be self-conscious thinking of itself as desiring to appropriate the object. That would be the wrong reading, right? Like that mm-hmm. would be the bad reading. That would be the reading that came from hypostasizing subject-object right. uh, distinction yeah. the, and, but, and ignoring the various levels that got us to right. subject-object distinction. Right. You know? But again, I mean, that, just, that, that's a moment that's necessary, <clears throat> like we've kind of talked about. That, that mistake yeah. of, the under, of the understanding, capital yeah. U... Like yeah. that's a moment in the progression of spirit for Hegel, yeah. Yeah, and th- th- I mean that's where it's sort of I, I that's where I'd be like, I mean I think that that it may be right in the sense of that's kind of how our organism works, but the idea that it's necessary seems, you know, uh, unnecessary, right? Like in, in fact, because what you're showing to me is what looks and seems to us like appropriation and desire from an object, and and therefore necessarily failure. It never was. Uh, uh, and, and never has been me wanting an object, right? That's just, right. that's a hyp- right. hypostatic mistake that self-consciousness m- makes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not, ne- it's not necessary to, to think of it that, like, that's not, it's just one of the things that we do. What would recognition look like with if you're not beginning from the the, the subject object uh, relationship that if the subject object is part of the production of the you know the recognition machine then yeah. like I mean what I what I would still steer away from is the the, the seeming necessity of recognition for Hegel yeah. but I would totally buy that like recognition becomes one. Uh, trope that gets mobilized in sort of cultivating erotic lines of flight, right? Yeah, that, it like, could be a block in Deleuze in Deleuze's terms. It, yeah, it felt it felt more like repetition. The way he was uh, using the word, like maybe I mean maybe this is a silly way to look at it, but like recognizing instead mm-hmm. of recognizing, like it's just like a repetition mm-hmm. of, of of the yeah. movement of cognition, and it and it mm-hmm. felt like a you know an elaboration of of the of Alf Haybon as well. Um, mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that next yeah. time. Well, that's fair, <laughs> and that's my fault. I mean, you guys can keep, you guys can go, man. I just no, no, no. I, I, I didn't finish that section. I, I, I read. Okay. I got about halfway through it and was just like, as I was reading the on um, Lordship and Bondage, I was just like, mm-hmm. I still don't understand what's going on in the section before it. I, I found like at least thirty percent of my brain was still working through that. So I'm glad that we're staying here. Right. It's interesting, yeah. though, because in many ways, what I've been saying for the last like five minutes is, uh, you know, in, insofar as I'm saying, let's not hypothesize the subject object relations. It's very much like what we were talking about in terms of vocabulary questions of the previous hour, where I'm like, you know, here are these categories, choice, freedom, you know, uh, universality, whatever, whatever, um, that when you allow them to, to sort of be in play and to not have... Um, some absolute or eternal quality do a lot of interesting work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sort of saying now, like, I don't want to allow, <laughs> I don't want to allow the subject-object distinction to have a kind of um, momentary momentary quality of its own. In other words, right. you you could certainly, and I think that there's a very good reason to suspect this, to say, like, the moment of self-consciousness is in fact a phase change, right? It's it, or like a phase change where all of that, the the self certainty, the uh, recognition of objects, those things that came before it, you know, now to the point of self consciousness, right? Um, the, these things are, um, I don't know, like uh, each moment is. Both a, I mean, this is what he does. Is what he wants to say. It is both a sort of continuation of an earlier process, but it's also a different kind of thing itself. And self consciousness brings into play a sense of desire as being mine, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, as being like my I want, right? And right. and that's a phase shift. And so, um, what you then have to do is to talk about it occurring, I guess, on a couple of different simultaneous levels, right? Which is mm -hmm. that yes, of course, we experience this as our desire, and yet the movement of consciousness happening beneath that is again but the word but beneath is going to be weird here right within like, yeah with within but it's same yeah. as and yet different from i mean it becomes hard i guess to try to I mean, this is one of the great things about hegel so far is it's hard to pin down what he thinks about anything because it just depends on what what page you look at <laughs> you know it really does yeah. <laughs> i mean no yeah. word's going to be consistent here and and i guess maybe what i'm trying to do is try to I'm sensing a kind of non-unitary non function of desire that I want to smear across the more unified uh, mm. moments, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, if again, what you're saying is that subject-object uh, uh, relationships can be rethought and, and, and have, you know, like a different kind of valuable life within this, I, I completely buy it. Right? Yeah. As long yeah. as you don't think yeah. about subject-object as either A, like like natural things in the world that we right. orient or, or that we court that our language corresponds to or B I would so, even say just like simply constructed things that then are out there in the world right. either then I, I mean I, then I would totally be on board that like subject object relationships are things that get deployed and then organize you know, the, the world according to a certain logic, but they're also constantly, they themselves are constantly getting reshaped in their own deployment. I mean, in other words, subject-object relationships are performative themselves. Right, right but but the, the step, I mean, I think that this is what you're saying, or maybe just to clarify as a question, is um, not which objects and which subjects, but the very nature no, of yeah. a subject-object relation, meaning exactly. it's... Right, like okay, it's not a question of who, this who or fits that. into so, yeah. that category, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but what it even means to have a subject-object relation. So, so yeah, I mean, that's the sense in which you could say, like, I guess for Hegel, you could say at least theoretically, you could say, like, well, some people hook in at one level, and they that's kind of where they stay for. 70 years you know or and other mm -hmm. people get to another level and that's where they stay and then other people go a little further you know i mean uh th right. that's the sort of progression uh i mean and it obviously teleological for him no question but but still like um maybe what i'm maybe what i'm pointing to is that getting stuck at an earlier level might be a better thing right like in other words advancing into humanness on on this register might in fact be the problem rather than the solution. Right. You know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it could be. I mean, and then it, it's like, there are so many valences of the dialectic, which is the, the title of Jameson's sort of long book on Hegel. And he, yeah. he kind of takes a similar approach where it's like Marx's version of Hegel is obviously a more materialistic uh, orientation. And I don't think one sure. versus the other, like one's not better than the other. I mean, it's like well, it's not different like things. It's like the right. what is very different questions. Yeah. yeah, 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 and yeah, you can hook into a, a version of Hegel that kind of suits your sensibility. I think, and that's yeah. not wrong. Like I, I don't. Well, we think, all do it. Yeah, I don't think using a text is wrong. <laughs> I mean, and that might, that might seem like an obvious statement, but like, figure out the stuff that works for you, right? But I, I mean, think that. But also, I think the lesson of Hegel in the passages that we've just read is precisely that there's no such thing as using a text, right? There's no because that presumes there's a me and there's a text, and it's like no. What he's shown us in terms of object relations, right? That the passage yeah. that we read for today right. in terms of object right. relations is that there isn't simply an object there, right? No, uh, no, a text, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. There isn't simply a subject here, right? That there is only mm -hmm. the relational sense, and so. Another way of saying it is you can do nothing but use texts mm. for your – I mean that's, right. that's the only option. And it's not appropriation, right? No. I mean it's not me making the text do something that mm. I want it to do any more than it's the text making me do what it wants me to do. I mean it's, it's not right. either of those things, you know. No, no. But, um, but against the, the traditional like kind of – because most Hegelians, you know, ironically probably – would want to think of themselves as understanding Hegel in his entire yeah. in the entirety of, it, of yeah. the system, yeah. which is like yeah. so against 
the yeah. the grain of the philosophy it seems or like, certainly right? the way that we're reading it because that's i mean i've watched lectures on uh, youtube there's a lot i told you about the one guy that i emailed with you know like i've watched yeah. his lectures and i'm like the book you're talking about seems completely foreign to the book that i'm reading i mean really yeah. like <laughs> you know i mean yeah. the, he's talking about the same company he's like here's what essence means i'm like well it depends on what page man and he's like yeah. no 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 here's what essence means for hegel like here's the glossary of hegelian terms I'm like the one thing I'm learning from Hegel, really, is that you can't have a glossary of Hegelian terms because exactly. the sense of the word's going to change, like like Nathaniel said, sentence to sentence sometimes. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like oh well, that's the essence, and like oh, a sentence ago when I said that was the essence, that was wrong. <laughs> it's not the essence. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I mean, if you, or I think another way of saying it, maybe this is a more Derridian way of saying it, is like if you tried to write the glossary. Uh, entry for the word essence, you would be writing in perpetuity, right? Oh, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not just that, like, things, you know, it's just not that it's polysemous. It's that, like, you know, it doesn't oh. matter where you start, you instantiate it, you know, in this particular way, and that is necessarily going to overcome to the next thing. And now you are performing, <laughs> you know, the Hegelian, right? Let's do it even yeah. better. Let's just say you're going to you write the glossary of one use of the yeah. word essence in Hegel. Yeah. You don't yeah. even have to talk about the glossary of the word Hegel as it occurs in its many instantiations. Just one yeah. use. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. You'll be writing forever. Yeah. Forever, mm -hmm. it's a it's a Borges story. I'm or, sure. or, you could, or you or the glossary would just be these useless tautologies like essence is essence, you know, right. and that would be the whole definition. <laughs> but it wouldn't be. I mean, he said he he has that. Yeah. Uh, there's that one passage where he says, "I am I" as an example of the useless tautology. I was like. That doesn't seem like a useless – like, haven't you taught me that's not a useless yeah. tautology? Which he Profound. has, right? Like, it's a kind of – it's like, wait, there's a conditional circularity and a provisionality to that, you know. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, but, I mean, it, it's – anytime you get to the point where you come up with an idea for a Borges short story, that means it's a good conversation <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> One of the issues for me with like uh, the the traditional the, the the traditionalist kind of approach with Hegel is like the difficulty of the writing doesn't mean that you should put yourself below the writer, right? You don't you don't have to revere the writer or think of no, him as yeah. some sort of like inaccessible like we were talking about earlier genius. Like you you have to put yourself on the same plane in order to produce something. I don't know, either useful or valuable or interesting yeah. to me at least. So that's why the kind of like analytic tradition, they're like in service of Hegel and they actually yeah. fail Hegel ironically in trying to do that, yeah. right? Like they think of themselves as students of these yeah. people, of these geniuses, you know? Yeah. And I feel like that's just a weird way to go about trying to write anything of worth I think or I, I think I use this quote, this speaks to what you're uh, saying there, Nate. I think I used this quote once before, so... Um, but Deleuze has a quote somewhere where he says there, there, there really are two ways of being a disciple. And mm -hmm. one is to say what the master said. And that's what almost everybody does as a disciple is say the things like Aristotle taught us that or Hegel taught us that. Say what the right. master said. And the other is to do what the master did, right. um, which right. in Aristotle's case is develop your own taxonomy of flowers or whatever, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. And, um, and he said, he said they... And the next part is they don't need to be uh, irreconcilable, those two mm -hmm. things, but they almost always are. Um, that yeah. most You're either a person who says what Hegel says or a person who does what Hegel did. Um, you you and, um, adapted that exact quote for that music thing, that Neil and music thing that we wrote, where you're like, look, you can say what Marx said or you can do what he did by diagnosing the... Right, that's right. right. The, that, the that's right. I've, always, I've always loved that quote because it just struck me. And for me, Aristotle, I was reading Aristotle and working with Aristotle at the time, and it just really hit me of like, oh my gosh, 90% of what I do as a student is try to learn what someone said so that I can say it and use it. And what I often don't do is, is say, well, here's what Aristotle, like instead of ethos, pathos, and logos and how they work, which are you know, boring, but whatever. Instead, it's like, hey, I'm going to look at the world of persuasive speech and try to come up with diagnostic categories for them. Right. That's what Aristotle right. did, you know, mm -hmm. and that's a really different, I mean, just think in order to call yourself an Aristotelian, 
anyone who calls themselves an Aristotelian is is in the former category, right? Uh-huh. They are yeah. they are people who do who say what he said and don't necessarily do what he did. Well, right, but I, to say that they're not irreconcilable, I think that's important as well because doing what he I did agree. doesn't mean abandoning the categories of ethos, pathos, and logos. No. What it does do it is abandoning that, like there's the right version of it, or like that's you know, right. I fu- now that I found it's only after I find out what they are that I can use them to correctly divide up the world. Like, but, but if you right. again, if you take them as as tote boy, be like, all right, mm-hmm. how does like let's take up ethos as a question and then see how it starts dividing up the world as I you know mobilize it. Then mm-hmm. you are in some ways double Aristotelian. <laughs> how can you It's like yeah. a Starbucks. Like I'm gonna go. Can I get a double Aristotelian with the <laughs> phone? That sounds nice. I might try I to order know. that. Yeah. Yeah. It comes with a side order of taxonomy. yeah but you're right i mean uh, assuming a stability of content is what most disciples do and in doing that especially with these with hegel or with derrida a a deridian or a nietzschean if you're making a glossary of concepts you are not doing what they did you are Reducing. The irony being, remember, you didn't take, I think, Nathaniel, maybe you were in it, that's the time that I taught that class on Nietzsche, were you in yeah. that class? Yeah. So, and remember on day one, I said, I remember, I took a class. There are Charles five Scott. things at Nietzsche. That's yep. right. And then I'm adding that's the sixth. Right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I did, I mean, it's, it's, seriously, so yeah. I began the whole thing, and, and I think it encapsulates, because this was for me such a formative moment in my thinking, and that had to have been a decade ago, where I was like, I took this class once with a guy where it was Charles Scott, and he said, who I love and I think is brilliant and amazing influence, but uh, he, he's like, there are five important lessons of Nietzsche, and he enumerates, you know, the eternal return and whatever, whatever, goes through the five things. And at the time, I, I came, I remembered what those five things were and wrote them all out on the board, and I was like, I just, there's such a big part of me that for 10 years after reading that, and I've always respected and admired Charles, but I'm like, how reductive of a way is that to read Nietzsche? Because to me, Nietzsche, like the idea that there's five lessons, like, no, mm. they're not five. I mean, you have to read this stuff. It's not just about the content of the right. propositions of the lessons he learned about this or that or whatever, whatever. And, and so that's how I felt for a very, very long time is that that's just a dismissive way. And then, when it came time to teach, it's like I, I find a certain actual admiration in that hypostasizing of these right. things into lessons. And so my like where I ended the lecture on that first day was and my goal for this semester is going to be to add a sixth thing to this list. Style is the sixth yeah, mm-hmm. thing that I wanted to add in, into it. And it's like mm-hmm. so how do you talk about the movement of the writing of, of Nietzsche? Well, you put a sixth thing and you call it style. And so what, you know, so it was this moment where I was like, wait, maybe that's exactly what Charles had done with the first five, right? Like, is that 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 hypostasizing moment needn't be necessarily antagonistic to one that is attentive to the movement of the thinking. And that's to me where this question of subjectivity becomes really, really important. What we were talking, the subject-object distinction as well, where I'm like, I'm resisting the hypostasizing because my concern is that the hypostasizing those positions of subject-object eliminates something about the movement uh, that, that got us there and leads us in a direction that I don't want to go in, though maybe I should be more willing. But to preventing, to, to preventing the, hypo, the hypostatizing move is also a hypostatizing move, right? That's By right. not That's allowing right. it, you're still fixing That's the boundaries right. Of where it's allowed to go and where it's it's not allowed to go into that fixed category, which is that's, a fixed. That's so right? that's so totally right, and that's that's what I learned from this. That passage that yeah. I pointed to you guys is realizing that the the fluid moment is a freaking moment. Yeah, right? like it's it's yeah. as much a form as the form. The formless is itself a form, and I was like, right. that's a twist that I had not really appreciated prior to that. You know, this is what I'm really excited about. I'm I'm gonna I I started writing a textbook last year. I talked to you about it, John, yeah. and yeah. um, and COVID cut it short. And I'm gonna I'm teaching that same class again this this uh, winter, and I'm gonna return to what I've already written and just use basically all my lesson prep time to do that. But like I am uh, effectively just like, yeah, I'm going to take all of these um, Aristotelian terms and try to take them as topoi for like activating the the thinking process. Like I'm going to use them as heuristics rather than 
You know, yeah. I mean, like there are two ways you can approach that. It's like, all right, I've hypothesized the thing and I know it's wrong. And then through the failure of the thing, it's going to produce something new. Or you don't even like, you don't even worry about the, 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 the failure yeah. and, and, and success. It's like, no, yeah. this is just a cut and it's going to yeah. like, just going to, it's going to create a new set of dynamics. And then I'm going to tr- trace out the, the, like what, what, what the, the ramifications of that cut. And then it's yeah, obviously going to lead to future cuts. That's great. And yeah. the, the thing the, the thing that I have a problem with is when it usually gets taught in the 101 classrooms of the world. It's like, this is ethos, and this is pathos, and this is low. And it's like, here, and of course, what inevitably happens, you know, moment two in that class is, well, wait, here's an example. Is this ethos or is it pathos? Yeah. And you go like, well, it's really kind of more, and you try to partition it. And you're like, no, no, no. The point of the exercise isn't that, right? It is, it is not to say it's this or that. It is to make a cut. And, Mm -hmm. but that's a hard thing because teachers, I mean, that's a hard thing to teach because it's, it's not just the teacher's fault. It's the students as well, right? The students want, I mean, we, we want like, tell me your categories and tell me your taxonomy and how does this fit? And I will learn how to put, you know, the square peg into the square hole, right? I'll learn that. (laughs) 